pray and offer love to those things that are sort of difficult or to those things that you want to do? Is it more fun to be giving prayer and love or to be chatting with each other or to be having dialogue or to be going out and uh, making peace in the world? Somebody came up while we are having... our uh, break and asked me um, three words what is peace Uh, and then he sort of clarified a little because um, the group I belong to we all belong to different clubs my club is called the Zen Peacemakers so you know what is this thing called peace Oh, that's a new song. The old song is... Um, so we'll, we'll have to talk a little about that. But let me start from the beginning. In the beginning. Uh, how, how many here are from Jewish tradition? Because it's the beginning of the... Uh, you know, he, there's a new year, yeah, and at the new year, one of the things that happens is that you start reading from the, the, the Torah again, from the beginning, and the very first word is in the beginning, Rashid. Uh, how many here have seen The Great Lebowski? So... What's uh, yeah? Uh, I don't know if I want to go there. <laughs> uh, how many people here have heard of a guy named Dogen? Dogen. He was a um, Japanese Soto Zen teacher founder of something called the Japanese Soto sect, although he himself was against clubs. He said there shouldn't be anything like a sect or school division. He promoted what he called, because he spoke Japanese and not Yiddish, he called it the Butsudo, which means um, the way of awakening. He said that's all that counts. And you don't want different clubs. You want whatever, you know, you want different ways to help people to awaken. Anyway, he wrote some interesting things. And one of the, and one of the things that he wrote, he, he talks about a lot of stuff. And then he says, and there are further ramifications or implications, depending on the translation. There's a line in the Big Lebowski that is a commentary on that. Uh, The dude says, something happens, and the dude says, new shit has come to light. (laughs) We were just visiting with a a, a dear friend of mine, a a rabbi, Zalma Shekta, who's a founder of Jewish Renewal Movement. We've... He's my rabbi. I'm his Buddhist teacher. We we go back a long, long time. And when I told him this, 
uh, he said, what's the Jewish equivalent? And we were trying to look for the Jewish equivalent, and my wife, who was with us, said, Breshit, in the beginning. New shit has come to light. <laughs> so, at any rate, how did we get there? Oh, I, right, I was going to start from the beginning. <laughs> so, there's a beginning of, of my particular life, um, which has an effect on, on where I wound up. I, I was born in Brooklyn, um, Jewish parents. My parents were sort of standard, somewhat standard uh, Secular Jews, in a way, uh, you know, went to services in high, the high holy, uh, the holy days. But all my aunts and uncles were communists, so I grew up in a very socialist milieu. That's also very common in that from that period. So I, I, when I think back, that's one of the big influences I think that leads me to wind up in socially engaged Buddhism. That. That early. that was one big factor. Uh, another big factor, which was sort of a turning point in my uh, career in Buddhism, because I was I, I was trained as an engineer and then as a mathematician and was working in the space industry, um, and I had a parallel track in Buddhism, which I. I started in 58, 1958, so this will be my 50th anniversary of being in Zen in January. Um, but, uh, there was a, an occasion where I had an experience, and before this experience, my intention was uh, becoming... I had already ordained as a Zen priest, and my intention was to um, stay within the temple and work with folks to awaken to the way of, to the Butsudo, the way of awakening, to work within that Zen uh, environment, that Zen temple environment, Zen meditation halls and temple. And then I had an experience in which I experienced I felt the the hungry ghosts of the universe screaming in dis, in suffering. Somebody asked about suffering, and I had the experience that those were all nothing but aspects of myself, and the immediate effect of that experience was a vow to try to feed all those hungry ghosts. And the the sufferings were due to all of the feelings of not being satisfied in all kinds of ways, all kinds of ways. That led me to decide that I wanted to work within all aspects of society, not to stay within the Zen temple or Zen meditation hall. And I started to work with the mandala of life, the circle of life, and the various energies of that circle of life, 
which are the various energies of all our lives, all the aspects of society. And to say, what, what are the ways, what are the ways that will help us, all of us, whether we've heard of Buddhism or not, whether we've heard of Vipassana or Zen or Tibet, whether we've heard of Judaism or Christianity, whether we've heard of religion, whether we've heard of oneness or multiness, or whether we've heard of anything, what are the ways to help all of us to awaken to that interconnectedness of life, that oneness of life? That's sort of what came up in that particular time, which uh, was in 19... I remember it. It was uh, 1975. And it just changed my whole life. I, I, and what I've done since then. Now, this relates, of course, to another beginning, which is the beginning of what we call the tradition of Buddhism, the tradition of the way of awakening. And there was this guy that you know, who was a very wealthy guy and and, uh, had a beautiful wife and great kids and wonderful harem and uh, lots of money and all kinds of things. And then he, you know, he leaves all of that and he he awakens, right? And and he comes and we start calling him the Buddha. Um, But he gives a message, and he gives a message that, and there are different ways that we can talk about this message, but one way is that he says that a life is suffering, that we all suffer. It's not quite the same word he, that as our suffering. He, he spoke a different language. He didn't speak English. He used a, a word called dukkha. It has a slight different nuance. But the closest we can come to it is probably uh, that we suffer. Uh, but, you know, that's what's the big deal. If that's the whole message, you know, um, um, go with health with that message. I mean, so... <laughs> but he went a little further. He said, uh, he said, we can eliminate that. Even that, we've been promised, uh, you know, there's, you can buy vials of different liquids and, and you can, I mean, there was a time you, uh, you still can get LSD pretty cheap, you can get all kinds of things. <laughs> so there's lots of stuff that you can do that will give you, um, uh, you know, an experience of, wow, I'm not suffering. Um, and he said there's a path towards the relieving of that suffering. He might have used the word ending of the suffering because we all want endings. Unfortunately, if you, I've never found the ending. Uh, I don't know, somebody in this group may have and you may have run into somebody who says they have. And as we say in Japanese, geikazuntere, that means go with health. Uh, I don't know anybody who's at least I haven't met them, but but certainly we can reduce the suffering of this world, and thereby our suffering. So there is a way, and the way that I'm familiar, and different people may have different ways, 
and there are different schools of Buddhism, and they have different ways of working towards that reduction of suffering. And even the terminology, they, we all have, we all use uh, the same words, many same words, and we all mean something different. So you got to be careful when you talk to people, find out what they really mean and what they're saying. But at any rate, uh, what I found to be the way to reduce suffering is to realize and experience uh, the oneness of life, the interconnectedness of life. And I... So my search for reducing the sufferings of the hungry spirits, which were what I experienced as all the aspects of myself, that is, the whole universe was nothing but me, and we were suffering. I was suffering. It's all kinds of... And the way to reduce that was for all aspects of myself to experience that interconnectedness of life, that oneness of life. And in that experience, the suffering gets reduced. And that has nothing to do with getting rid of what we think of as the things that are giving us suffering. It has to do with becoming at one with what is. <clears throat> any rate, those, those are sort of words, and um, it led me to want to work, in, as I said, in these different spheres of life. And it, want, it led me to try to experience those aspects of myself that I was afraid of or in denial of or at least didn't like. And so I would... Uh, I created retreats and workshops to work in those arenas. And at first I did it just for myself, but invited people, friends to come, and they came, and, and it turned out to be a helpful way of, of, uh, of practice, of, of the practice of reduction of suffering. And so that reduction of suffering, as I said, is is the bringing together, the the realizing, the interconnections of the the oneness of life. <clears throat> when I use the name peacemakers for our Zen family, I did it because of my background being Jewish spending time in Israel, knowing the Hebrew language, and knowing that the word for peace in Hebrew is shalom, which you don't have to be Jewish to know. Most people know shalom is and in Arabic, salam. My Sufi name is uh, Abdul Salam, servant of peace, given by my Sufi teacher. But shalom, in Hebrew, every word has a root, three-letter root. The root of shalom is a word called shalem. Shalem means to make whole. So in, the, in Bereshit, in the, in the days of the beginning, according to the Jewish mystical tradition, the light of God filled 
a cup. And it was so intense that the cup burst into pieces, went all over. And the role of the righteous ones, the tzaddikim, the tzaddik, are to bring those pieces together to make a whole. And that will reduce the suffering. So that word shalem means to make whole. So the peacemaker, I'll say shalom, are the people who are trying to bring the pieces back together. As individuals were fragmented, as families were fragmented, as societies were fragmented, there's the notion of self and other. If we can get rid of that fragmentation, come back to the oneness of life, in and of itself it reduces suffering. Why? So, uh, let me give a metaphor which you in the back can't see, so I will stand. <coughs> can you? Now you can see, I hope. So imagine that this hand is called Mary, and this hand is called John. And Mary and John have read, have gone to retreats, have read books, and they know that they are at one with Bernie. They know it but they don't grok it. <laughs> they know it. John is wearing a new suit. Mary gets gashed, and the blood is gashing him, going all over. And John looks and says, ah, I got a new suit. Should I get involved with that bloody mess? I may, you know. Or, John may say, I better not do anything. I'm not a doctor. I'm not trained. Or, John might say, I don't have the right things. I don't have the right ingredients. I don't have bandages. I don't, I don't have the... I can't do anything. Or, John says, I've only been meditating for 20 years. I'm not fully enlightened. Why should I mess around with suffering? I've got to get to the place where I'm fully enlightened. Then I could do something. So what happens? Mary bleeds to death. John dies and Bernie dies. Because it doesn't matter that they don't experience, they don't grok the oneness. They are one. Their knowledge is keeping them apart and letting that suffering go on. Take another case, a more, also a very common case, especially among socially engaged Buddhists. I'm a socially engaged Buddhist. Um, Bernie is hungry. Oh boy, I wish I had some food. I haven't had food for weeks now. I'm starving. All my money's been in the, in the market. <laughs> I got no money left. How am I going to eat? Mary says, I'll feed you. Don't worry about the market. I'm going to give you food. John says, no, no, I want to give food. I want the merit because then I'm going to be reborn as a great, you know. No, no, I want to give the food. No, no, I want to give the food. So they both fight. Who's going to, give, who's going to feed Bernie? Bernie starves to death. <laughs> Mary dies. John dies. Okay. That's sort of the condition of our world. Um, but 
after coming to lots of Monday nights and then to other kinds of programs at Spirit Rock, John and Mary both have the experience of the oneness of life. Now, for a couple of seconds they say, oh, we're burning. Isn't that dumb? I mean, how can these two hands go around saying they're burning? So they forget about saying that. Now, if if this hand has gashed, this hand does something. It cannot not act. It, it takes whatever it has and does something. Is it correct what it does? Who knows? But it does something. The ingredients make a meal. It doesn't say, I'm not going to do anything because I don't have the right stuff. It acts automatically. If, if, this, if there's hunger, whatever hand is closer to food picks it up and brings it to the mouth. It, it works naturally. Does it mean hunger is gone? No. If there's no food, does it mean that there's, that this hunger doesn't need the food? No. But it's not the suffering of knowing. It's the action of not knowing, of, of being totally open to what is and... As the raindrops fall on the leaf, the leaf just bends naturally. As the, catap- as the centipede wants to walk, it doesn't have to stop to say which foot goes next. It walks. That's the reduction of suffering that happens. It does not eliminate the things that we look at as our pains. But we are so with it that we do what has to be done. And in so doing, we may die. The hand gets gangrened, and the gangrene's going. This hand may cut it off to stop the gangrene from advancing, to stop Bernie from dying. It's tough decisions. It's not like it's all utopia. But the major suffering that we have and the suffering that we can reduce is the suffering of of separateness, of fragmentation. So, those are the beginnings and it led me into doing uh, different kind of works. And I wanted to work, uh, wound up working with uh, the disenfranchised, the homeless um, developed big projects in, in New York and in Yonkers to help people who, who were homeless that, and wanted to get out of welfare to get out of welfare. So we created housing, permanent housing. We created jobs. We created um, addiction programs. We created um, family counseling programs, uh, educational programs, after-school programs, uh, all kinds of programs. We looked at it holistically, saw what was needed, and worked at at, at changing the system. And so from homelessness, it grew to to, uh, low-income folks, to people uh, with AIDS, that kind of work. And that has led us to, to our current work, which is training folks who... Training Buddhists, really, and may expand, but at this point is training Buddhists who wish to work, do that kind of work, 
in my first street retreat, Jack mentioned I, I, I went and lived in the streets. My first street retreat, which was about 25 years ago, I've done hundreds probably, all around the world. But in the first one, and it's been true ever since the first one, what I found is that the agencies that were out there ready to help did not include any Buddhist agencies. And it bothered me. You know, it's mostly Christian groups. And, and, and I brought people to experience the various agencies out there helping. Dorothy Day's Catholic Houses, the Baptist missionaries, all kinds of programs. I didn't find the Buddhist one. My last retreat was about six months ago in, in a city, or a year ago, I'm not sure, in Springfield. Still haven't found the Buddhist one. I have found some Buddhists that want to do that kind of work, and they found Christian venues to do it in. So the Zen peacemakers, we've decided that we will establish Dharma centers within the impoverished areas of our country and train people how to work in those Dharma centers where the main focus of the Dharma center is not to come there to learn how to uh, make your... Well, in a way it is how to make your life better, but it is... It, the way of doing that is by serving the community, and not just the Buddhists in the community, but the community, the people in need in, in, in the community. So, uh, in a way, what we're trying to do is create the Franciscans of the Buddhist world. And uh, I was reminded by this young man, who was reminded by my young man, that uh, we have brochures out there talking about that training program. Uh, if, if you're interested or if you have no people that are interested, we're trying to find those Buddhists who want to do that kind of work and we will be establishing or we'll be helping people to establish those kind of centers and, uh, and helping them to foster so that people can go work in, in, in those. That's our, our new work which has come out of uh, 25 years of doing that in New York and of my street retreats and, and and the different kinds of uh, works of that nature that I've done. The first two houses, we're calling them Zen houses, and, and, and they'll, they'll wind up... Uh, everything I do also has an interfaith component. I've been involved in interfaith work for 30 years or more. And the first two will be our opening in Appalachia in mid... mid uh, Pennsylvania, Appalachia, and in uh, Roxbury, which is a poor area of, of Boston. And then others, there's a woman who wants to open, a, start a tent in New Orleans, a Zen house uh, that way. There will be helping, we'll be training people and helping them to, to do that. Um, okay, now I answered a lot of your questions as you noticed, it was the first time I've ever done that. I hope it helped. Um, I hope it helped. Some yeah, there was an interesting. Somebody talked about constant change. That's the new Buddha speaking. See, because that's what got. Uh, that's what Shakyamuni talked about. 
He said it's all changed. That's why he was suffering. That's one of the, what he gave is one of the main causes of our suffering is that life is nothing but change. It's all different. You think you're the same person, but no, no. Each It's all change. But we don't want it to be. So we have these expectations, how it should be. And it ain't. It doesn't wind up being the way we want it to be, and so we suffer. Or it's the way we don't want it to be, so we suffer. There's whatever our expectations, how we would like it to be, how we would like it not to be, uh, it doesn't go the way we think it should go. Isn't that something? Uh, you know, how, how can Bush get elected a second time? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. This can't be the life we're living. <laughs> Where's the rationality? Um, so that's what Shakyamuni said, that we're constantly coming up with what we think it should be, how it should be, and it doesn't happen that way. It's constant change. So how can you be at one with constant change? You have to completely let go of your attachments to any idea you have, any concept you have. To do good work, we have three tenets in the, in the uh, Zen Peacemakers. The first is not knowing, to be totally open. Not to not have knowledge. You, we should have as much knowledge as possible. Fill up our bag with as much training, knowledge, ideas, concepts as you, as you can. But be in the state of not knowing. That is, do not hold on to any particular one. Go into the situation completely open and free. Second tenet, bear witness. Grok what's going on. Feel what's happening. Out of that, grab the right tool from your bag. You can only grab the, a tool that you have in your bag. That's why you need to load it up as much as you can with as much as... But it's at that point that you grab something and then apply it. Normally, our mode of operation is we come to a situation and we say, ah, we know the answer, right? And we have a fixed answer that we're going to apply to the situation. It creates more mess. If we could be totally open to the situation, really feel it, and then pull out the right tool, then we call our third tenet loving actions. So we want all three things to happen. We want practices to help us to let go of our attachment to or our clinging, our attachments to these concepts and ideas. We want, we have trainings to help us to bear witness to the situation itself, that is to eliminate the gap between the subject and object of the situation and to bear witness to it. And then to act, that it's not enough to just say, oh yeah, I've experienced this wonderful state. Do something about it.
do something to make the situation less suffering. <coughs> and guess what? If it doesn't go the way you expect it, that's because you're hanging on to an idea. Keep doing that. doesn't matter what happens. Keep working to reduce the suffering and keep working to reduce the suffering. Another way of saying it is if you have a child, love it. Keep loving it. To give love one second is not enough. To give it one day is not enough. Keep loving. Um, let, I've rambled a, a fair amount. Let's let's open for some some questions from because it's hard to have dialogue if there's only one person talking. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a there's a lady in the audience. I have two questions. Two questions. Oh, greed comes in. You can't believe it. <laughs> How many people tell you that you look just like Bodhidharma? I'll tell you a story. <laughs> We just went, uh, my wife and I and Genki, who, Genki is uh, replacing me as the head of the Zen Peacemaker Sangha and the head of our Maizumi Institute and the uh, one who's coordinating all these Dharma centers in the impoverished areas and the training centers for the people who want to do that work. So if you want to do that or if you have somebody you don't like and you want them to do that <laughs> Have in contact, but anyway, the three of us were just in. Um, in um, we went to, to um, Boulder. Um, one of my students, who's a, a teacher now, was his his partner just died a short while ago. We we went for the forty nine day ceremony. So at the airport, we went to get the car, and this guy's staring at me as I come in to get the car. And um, I didn't know whether he, he saw me on a, in the post office on a wanted list. Or I, I didn't know why he was staring at me. And then he finally came up and he said, Are you Willie Nelson? <laughs> now, nobody has ever come up to me and said, Are you Bodhidharma? But... Uh, but in Japan, a lot of the uh, priests I know there call me Daruma, which is the Japanese term for Bodhidharma. Yeah, that, because we're beards, see? It's unusual to find us Zen guys with beards. Like, look at him, see? That's what you're supposed to look like. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether it's the beard, but yes, there's been a... Yeah. Anyway, for those who know, if you've never met Bodhidharma, he's a guy who looks like me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Roshi. Well, this, you had a second question. I do. Oh, okay. Can you describe your street retreats in a little more detail in terms of, well, you've done them in different cities and different places in the world over the years, but what what are some of the threads that you find in common or what are some of the common practices 
that you do in these street retreats? Yeah. Uh, first off, w- w- one of the important things about street retreats is that um, if you haven't done them, your expectations are always wrong. It's, 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 um, I, I've never met anybody who has gone on a street retreat, unless they read about them, but that's gone on a street retreat that wasn't tremendously affected by it and not in the, any way that which they expected. Um, the normal, the normal expectation when somebody thinks of a street retreat is that they may get mugged, that it's dangerous, and that they're going to be hungry. Those are the two big fears that most people have. I've never experienced either of those in all of the street retreats we've done. What is common, two things that are common, and one one thing that's common, and the reason I've continued the street retreats after the first one, the first street retreat I did, there was about 16 or 18 of us. And I did it um, mainly because I was getting, I was going to start working in, in the world of homelessness. And I remember that as uh, when I graduated college, so it was about 20 years prior, I had and talking with a friend who, who said, what are you going to do now that we're graduating college? I said, there's three things I want to do. I want to live in a Zen monastery. I want to live in a kibbutz in Israel. And I want to live in the streets. And then 20 years later, I was about ready to start doing work in, with homeless folks. And uh, I had lived in a Zen monastery. I had lived in a kibbutz. And I had not lived in the streets. So I went. So that was a vow that I made. And vows have power. <coughs> Be careful when you make vows. Because of that vow, I did that. I went on the streets. And about 18 people joined me. And they were of different types. There were a few people that had never meditated in their life. There were a few people that had done immense amount of meditation. Um, they were from different traditions. So it was a, a, a variety of people. I'd say 90% of those people were tremendously affected, tremendously affected in ways that decades and numbers of retreats had never done. And therefore, I continued the retreats. Now, I think part of the reasoning that happened is that we were all forced to live in the moment in a real way, not in any imaginative way or, or... practice way. We were forced to live in the moment. That was one big thing. But another transformation that occurred that was so important was that I've never had anybody go in the streets with me who could then walk in the streets and look away from anyone. Because when they were on the streets, they experienced people not seeing them. None of these people had experienced that before. I'll tell you a story. On Ellen Burstein's 70th birthday, she went on the streets with me. It was about five, uh, maybe it's more than five years now. And, and, and every time 
she gives a public talk, she winds up talking about the time she went on the streets and in a particular incident. I make everybody beg. They can't have any money when they come to the streets. And you have to beg. And I, and I bring them to eat at different venues so they can experience different ways that people treat. And many of the ways that people treat folks that, you know, it's beautiful things. You get food, sandwiches, you bring them down. But what's interesting is when you're being fed that way, you can really pick up if people are feeling sorry for you or looking down at you when they're doing it, even though it's in the best of intentions. So it's a, it's a big... It's a big thing to see. So I bring them to all the various ways, and, the, and we sleep in the various venues. There's all kinds of venues for sleeping, you know, on the street, on sidewalks, under cardboard, on, on if it's cold, by grating, by heat grills, on the subways, on the bus terminals, and all kinds of ways. Uh, but at any rate, so they have to beg. So Ellen uh, went, there was a, a little cafe outside of Tompkins Park in Lower Manhattan. And uh, she went and asked for a dollar because she uh, she needed to... She told them she needed to take her train somewhere, which was true. She had... She was 70 years old. Two months after that street retreat, she had both knees replaced. She knew they were going to be replaced when she went on the street. So, though she walked with a cane for a lot of... We also would beg for money so she could ride to the next places. She had never been in subway before that retreat. At any rate, she, she asked for a dollar, and this woman gave her a dollar. And she started to cross the street, and she was smiling because she got the dollar. And then she started to cry. And she said, why am I crying? And then she realized she cried because the woman looked away as she gave her the dollar. I don't know anybody who's ever gone on the streets with me that can pass a homeless person without saying, how are you doing? What's your name? They don't want money. They want love. We all want love. We want dignity. We play with the markets. We play with all kinds of things. But when it comes down to it, whoever we are, we want love. We want dignity. I don't care how poor, how rich you are. That's the basis of what we want. The rest can come and go. Um, and you learn that on the streets in a way that you can't learn it in books. At least that's been my experience, and that's why I keep doing it. And I've never stopped uh, since that time. And I haven't found it to differ much, those experiences, between doing it in, uh, in Switzerland and Germany and France and New York and California, you know, wherever. The same, different nationalities, different types of people, the same kind of things, you know. We take it so much for granted that people will look at us when we, t- when we see each other. Those are street retreats. Um, they become a whole practice. There's a beautiful group here in San Francisco, Faithful Fools. How many know the Faithful Fools? If you don't know the Faithful Fools, look up the Faithful Fools. They're... Beautiful. There's only there's about three, four people here. They started their organization after reading my book, Bearing Witness, the last... Uh, and re- reading about street retreats. They work in, in the uh, Tenderloin, they, and they work with the homeless, 
and everybody who's on their board or on their staff does goes out in the streets. They've taken out 3,000 people by now, led by two women. One is a UU minister, Unitarian Universalist minister, and the other is San Fris- uh, a Franciscan sister. Um, there is now a street ministry within the UU church due to them. They've been training UU ministers around the country how to do this. and A beautiful group doing beautiful work. Oh, some other questions? Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, wait, wait. Oh, we've got to have the microphone. Yeah, we're going to run out of time. I, back to your uh, three tenants for um, suffering? Or no, three t- tenants? The three, you said you had three tenants yeah. for um, satisfying? Or not, not, not knowing. That is being totally open to the situation. Right. Not being bearing witness, bearing witness, bearing witness to the joys and sufferings of the world, and and what I mean by bearing witness is the elimination of subject-object relationship. It's one of the practices in Zen. Zen has has built up practices to to uh, to get rid of that separation of subject and object. They've done it in all kinds of ways. They've done it by shouting, by by sticks, by koans, all kinds of things. I do it by plunges. I use all the other techniques also. I don't use the sticks and um, very rarely the shouting. But <laughs> see, that, that can, that can break away our, 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 our separation of subject and object. We're just there when that happens. See, that's why they did those things. Uh, I do plunges. I bring you into situations where the mind cannot keep up that separation. When you're on the street, you cannot you're there. There's no way to keep up that separation. At Auschwitz, it's the same. We, we do retreats at uh, places where the, it goes beyond the fathering of the mind. So the second tenet is bearing witness, and the third is loving actions, doing something about it. We, we're a, a, uh, a, uh, the Zen Peacemakers is about doing loving actions, about doing things. Thank you. So my question is, when you said before you have the loving action... You spend time allowing, not getting attached to the outcome, but allowing the outcome to come to you? Is that what you were trying to express? For instance, God God has um, visualized it better than you could, so do you wait until it feels right to have the loving action? No, that, that's not what I said. Okay. Um, but I, the, the not knowing is entering into... A situation and being totally open, not having a fixed idea of what is going to be lot or an expectation. And then the second is trying to just feel that situation. So here, I, I'm, um, here's an example. I'm a carpenter, Bernie the carpenter. And being a carpenter, I want to be a wonderful carpenter. So I've studied the Amish ways of carpentry. The um, I've studied the Japanese ways of carpentry, the Swedish ways, the American ways. I've studied all kinds of ways of carpentry. And they, they're they all specialized tools. So I put those, the, the, the shakers. I, I can make shaker furniture. I've studied those ways. And I put those tools in my tool bag. I have this tool bag with all these tools. 
and I know all these ways of doing things. And then I get a call, and the woman, and 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 this young lady, Cynthia says, uh, "Bernie, I heard you're a carpenter. Yeah, I'm a carpenter. Can you fix my door? I can try." So I go to the to the woman's house, and the front door is sticking, and it's now. If I'm the person who's attached to an idea, whatever the idea is, I know how to fix that door, and here's how you're going to do it. The attachment looks like my hand is stuck on one of those tools. Maybe it's stuck on the hammer. So I go to the door, and I start banging away at the door. That's not bearing witness. That's not not knowing. That's knowing I know how to fix the situation, and I'm going to apply it to the problem. Not knowing is saying, oh, there's a door. I don't have it. I have this bag of tools, but no, no hand. It's got nothing to do with God. I, I walk and there's the door. Mm, now I'm going to bear witness to the door. So I move it and I feel it. Oh, it's scratching. It's, ah, ah. I, I'm, I'm hearing the door. You know, I Ah, I know what's happening. This is loving action. So now I reach in, take out the sandpaper, rub it a little. Nope, it's still fetching a little. Ah, let me feel. Oh, maybe some oil on the hinges. That's our three tenets. It's... Another question. Another. Do people at these centers do sitting training too? Do they do Zen training? Sure, and we even eat. Oh, you eat? Yeah, we, you know, we do all kinds of things. Um, I, I remember once when I first got involved in socially engaged Buddhism, I like to call it socially engaged instead of engaged because all things are engaged. But anyway, uh, people would say, and do you still meditate? Come on. As if they meditated 24 hours a day and didn't do anything else. Meditation for me is a piece of life, just like eating and breathing is a piece of life. Those are all things you do. Okay. And then what? Is that the end of it? You do other things, right? You walk in the street, you see somebody, you, a person falls, you pick them up. That's social action. You do all those things. When I first started, and, and that question has mostly disappeared from the horizon, but when I first started to do social, to do the kinds of works I was doing, I was criticized because that was defaming the Dharma as if working for others is defaming the Dharma. You know how it's defaming the Dharma? Because you look at them as others. The founder of the Shingon sect of Japan, which is the tantric sect of Japan, Kobodaishi, considered the greatest Japanese religious leader of all time, said that the way you can judge the depth of a person's enlightenment is by how they serve others. If your notion of self is this limited body, it turns out that's who you serve. If your notion is the universe, you'll serve the universe. So, uh, and in so doing, you don't stop eating, you don't stop breathing, you don't stop sitting, you don't stop reading, you don't stop loving, you don't stop... You, life is a full life. 
And sitting to me is as important as eating. But, you know, for others sitting, it probably may not be so important. And I don't, I will still judge them by how they serve others. Not by, one of my teachers, a man named Yastani Roshi said, you know, you can walk by lots of storefronts and see dolls sitting in a cross-legged position. That doesn't mean they're doing what we call Zazen, Zen meditation. And it doesn't mean to me that they are an enlightened being. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I would really appreciate it if you could speak a little bit about the retreats in Auschwitz. Okay. And let me just say, uh, Dido's in much better shape. Uh, 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 she's uh, a brother, a Dharma brother of, my, of mine, uh, who's a bit older than me, not so much older, but a bit older. We're in our 70s both. Well, I'll be 70. He's in his 70s. Uh, but he just had lung cancer. And uh, right now they don't see any cancer. He's been through many things and it's been up and down. But right now he's in good shape. As good shape you can be having lung cancer not the best thing to have. Um, Auschwitz. I, I ordained a man, his name is Claude Thomas, Anshin Thomas. And uh, I was going to, the idea was to he was going to uh, be part of a walk from Auschwitz to Hiroshima. It was led by a group of Japanese monks that walk and hit the drum for peace and chant the Lotus Sutra. Beautiful group, sort of a Gandhi. The founder was a Gandhi of Japan. A Gandhi. There was a few Gandhis of Japan. He was one. He's since passed. Uh, but Anshin was going to walk, be part of this walk that was going to go through all the war-torn countries from Auschwitz down. And so I was going to do a lay ordination for him at Auschwitz to start his walk and a priest, a uh, novice priest ordination for him in Vietnam at uh, the helicopter field where he uh, was stationed. And uh, so I went, and there was an interfaith retreat sort of starting this walk. So I went there, and it was my first time to Auschwitz, and I was so overwhelmed by the immensity. Auschwitz was three camps. Uh, Auschwitz one. Auschwitz II is called Birkenau. Auschwitz III was where they made the uh, the gas for the gas chambers. It was a chemical plant um, run by slave labor. Um, Auschwitz II, Birkenau, is is uh, beyond the beyond the ability of the rational mind to 
comprehend. It's so huge, so immense. And I, walking there, I could just feel, uh, I could feel the spirits. I, it was, uh, and so that's happened to me at different times in my life where I'd walk into something which was ununderstandable, ungraspable, and which uh, made me want to sit there and bear witness to, 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 to try to grok what's going on. So I decided to do a retreat there, and uh, <clears throat> I, as you know, Auschwitz was a place where Hitler came up with a solution for getting rid of people that don't belong in your club. I, I, I divide life into clubs. We all do that. We all have our clubs, and we have ways of deciding who's in the club and who's not in the club. So, you know, some of us might be liberal Democrats, some Republicans, some not liberal Democrats, some whatever. You don't invite people from the other club into your club, into your house, generally. You know, you, you hang out with the people that you think that you like. Those are your club members. So we have different things. And, 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 in different, you know, at different times, we, we have clubs, if you run through a red light, you get arrested, you go, you can get a, and you have things to do with people that violate the rules of your club. Uh, if you're black, you could get lynched in the old days, and you didn't belong to that club, or gay, you could get bad, you know, there's all kinds of things that people would do to folks who didn't fit in the club. Auschwitz is a place that epitomized a way of getting rid of those that don't fit into the club, the Aryan class, you kill them. It's very common. But that was a place that, that epitomized that and and was so many groups. That's where where we killed the gays, the the uh, the uh, mentally in, in, uh, subordinates. We killed the... Uh, uh, the first ones to be killed there were the uh, Polish elite, and then the Polish, um, the intellectuals were all killed there. The the uh, people who don't look like us, they were killed there. So it was a place of killing, of killing, of getting rid of the differences, of one way. So I decided that when I wanted to do that retreat, I wanted to bring as many differences as I could to that place. So the first retreat was about 150 people. It was about 10 different religions, about 20 different countries. It was children of SS officers. It was children of survivors. It was survivors. It was um, all kinds of folks. What, what happens when you bring all kinds of different folks together? They fight. Because no matter how liberal we are or how we are, you bring enough diversity and it causes problems. So the Auschwitz retreat was designed specifically in a specific way to bring as many diverse groups. I brought the, the, the woman who was the queen of the gypsies of Poland there because her clan, the gypsies, that's where they were killed for being gypsies. Uh, we, had gay, we had all kinds of diversity. And... Uh, the first day, I, I, it was planned to be overwhelming. 
It's not hard to overwhelm there, but it was a full day and the experiences were deep enough to where we were all overwhelmed. That meant the brain couldn't think. That meant the ability to hold on to our ideas and concepts was very, very difficult. We were open. So, and then we we uh, spent the days bearing witness, being there, and bearing witness to the joys and sorrows of what goes on there. And we did small groups of counsel, we did large groups, we did all kinds of things. And as I say, in the first few days, there a lot of stuff came up. Uh, there was a rabbi who wound up leading in the first night when everybody was so overwhelmed, he wound up leading people in dance. Half of the people were ready to quit the retreat because how can you dance in a place like that until this Orthodox Jewish woman said, we Jews dance. It's different cultures could not grasp the other cultures. <coughs> Even though on one hand they were sort of connected as being liberals, their their guts were different, and they and those guts were exposed at Auschwitz. And by the end, we were one family. A lot of sorrow, a lot of tears, a lot of suffering. We were one family, and it was such a powerful retreat that uh, I can. Continued it for um, for many years, asked I, and uh, eventually asked others to you know said I, I wanted to stop, and at, after the eighth year I stopped going, but in the tenth year I went back because uh, it was the tenth anniversary and I, I wanted to go back, and after ten years I was so taken by the retreat that I went the eleventh year, now it's the thirteenth year I'm, I'm, I'm I don't think I'm going anymore. But it is continuing, and the idea of those kind of bearing witness retreats is becoming another practice within the Zen peacemakers and spreading out to other places. There's now one being planned in Rwanda. It's not easy to plan it the way I... We tried to do it among Native Americans, and we couldn't get them to come together. We couldn't get the different folks. It's not easy to bring brothers together. Um, Anyway, we have gone past the allotted time. And unless, as I'll tell you one last joke, <laughs> which uh, I, I was at the wedding of one of my, uh, a, a friend and a student and the first Zen peacemaker priest. And uh, his father was a, a, a AA speaker circuit speaker, one of the... He, he was an amazing man, and for for, um, for 40 years, when I met him, he was 40 years and been in AA and, and hadn't missed a meeting for 40 years, a day. At any rate, at the wedding, I was sitting at his table, and a, and a guy came over and said, um, the waiter came over and said, would you like, uh, would you like a drink, sir? And he said... Not unless you have two weeks to spend with me, Sonny. <laughs> so I will say good night to you all, unless you have two weeks to spend with me. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. And remember, pick up those brochures and give them to who you think is appropriate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.